episode two of Good Looking Out, a podcast about what to eat, watch, read, and listen to, because life is too short to waste time and money on bad shit. I'm Eric. And I'm Jason. And with us this week, we have a special guest who we mentioned on episode one. <laughs> I'm Mark. The, the, he, the offender, the cheese steak <laughs> offender. Which I'm annoyed that I was not here to defend myself, but let's move on. <laughs> Alright, uh, before we get into it, I just want to say a brief warning for our faithful listeners. We express our opinions on this podcast in a passionate and colorful manner. Sometimes that means we use explicit language. If you have children in the room, you may want to use headphones. Alright, let's get right to it. So this week we're going to change up the categories a little bit, and we're actually going to start off with the read category. Yes. And uh, for this week's theme, we wanted to talk about sure thing authors. We touched on this a little bit last week when we were talking about Dennis Lehane, and I introduced kind of the concept of a sure thing author, which uh, when I was evaluating this week, it's someone whose every book they've released. You can recommend this author wholesale to anyone, no matter what title they pick up. It's going to be great. I'm tell you, I'm glad to see. So you made a few notes here. Um, oh, and I see the one I was hoping to talk about on here. So when you talked about like surefire authors that they're always going to do something great, I got the thought like we're talking about authors that are current and active, which cuts out kind of a lot from me, you know? Yeah. Um, no, no, absolutely not. In fact, one of the people who I was on the fence about is um, one of your and my favorites, Jim Thompson. Oh, yeah. And now... Jim Thompson has many of my favorite novels and is an incredible crime writer, obviously, and was a pioneering writer in the crime and noir scene. However, not every book quite hits the mark for me. No, not, certainly not. And I think that's what makes him genius is because he was pretty prolific. I mean, he wasn't crazy, but he, I think the thing I liked about him is that he was, he was kind of crazy and was... Like, not he was not afraid to take chances, which lets him reach, you know, like amazing yeah. in, heights. In the defense of authors like Jim Thompson and someone like a Philip K. Dick who pioneered their genres and were unbelievably prolific, these guys were writing to try to make a living at the same time, too. So that meant their output was um, different than a lot of authors today. With okay, the exception right. of maybe an Elmore Leonard who kind of straddled both worlds, modern and that world, when he was writing for magazines and getting paid by the word, getting paid by the story. Yeah. Um, and Elmore Leonard is another one of those authors that like has written some of my favorite books, a lot of things that have been turned into really amazing movies. Yeah. Maybe not every book is a hit, but when you've, what did he put out, like somewhere in the 70s or low 80s of novels? I mean, come on. Didn't stop. Legendary writer. Yeah, legendary writer. And like required reading. I think we're, we're always going to be like... <laughs> we're always going to be guilty of skewing heavy to crime, you know, in mystery and which is fine. I mean, I'm not going to I'm not going to make any apologies, but um yeah, my picks for this week and I'm probably going to be a little heavy in this category. You're probably going to be a little heavy in the next category, which which is watch and what we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. But I actually uh, went through all the categories I read in starting with um literature uh and I started with um Tobias Wolf who's sort of a, a um, sort of second, third generation. Um, you know, Hemingway was a massive influence on him, and I think he writes in a similar style to Hemingway. I think everything from the short stories you'll see uh, collected um, in his books or short stories and anthologies to all the novels that he's written are just absolutely amazing. Oh, I yeah. Think he's spot on. Really, he has that sparse sort of lean style, and you'll, you'll see. I also picked Raymond Carver, who... You know, yeah. once again has that same sparse, lean style that I really and love. For me, honestly, like I have to interject here. Like for me, he was the one like I first thought of when I was like, all right, if, if we're talking about people that are surefire and you can bet on continuing with great work, I was like, well, if we're that screws me for Raymond Carver because he was for me, he was life changing. He literally changed my life, Raymond Carver. Like it's one of the most I remember where I was when I was reading Raymond Carver books. Like, I can remember back, like, so clearly. Like, he was life-changing for me. I mean, I, we can't get into depth here about Raymond Carver. I, I could, we could do hours on yeah. him, but... Have you seen oh Birdman? Okay, so that I was just going to mention, like, I feel like a lot of people who maybe don't know Raymond Carver, I mean, they did um, Robert Altman... Um, 
did shortcuts, um, which I thought was genius uh, uh, interpretation of Raymond Carver. But um, I was so surprised that I, I started watching Birdman, and I kind of knew it was you know it's Michael Keaton. He's you know he's the superhero guy, and and he's gonna put on a play. And then when I sat down and I started watching it, and he's adapting Raymond Carver, I was like, you've got to be shitting me! I'm like, this thing is made for me. So. Um, yeah, that that was, and maybe it'll turn more people onto him. Not that he needs it, but Tess Gallagher is, is Tess Gallagher still alive? Um, I don't. I'm not sure. That's a good question. I don't know. I'd like to see her get a couple more. Yeah, a little more action in the mailbox, right? All right, I've got a long list here. Yeah, so go, I'm go, go. Start moving through it. Uh, Flannery O'Connor. Um, if you haven't read her famous short story, "A Good Man Is Hard to Find," brilliant, brilliant short story yeah. about you know self delusion. Steinbeck. You know, and Hemingway, I'm going to continue my tradition of, like, lean, sparse, real-life authors. I mean, Hemingway, from his short stories through all of his novels, everything, absolutely brilliant. Um, and that was what I had for literature. For mystery and crime, I, of course, started with Dennis Lehane. I think Dennis Lehane, across the board, from when he's doing historical to um, his P.I. series to his one-offs, just absolutely spectacular. Uh, Joe R. Lansdale, who is an extremely prolific author, writes in both horror and crime and does does some other stuff, some kind of um, super Yeah, he's all over the shop, yeah. Really great. Uh, Megan Abbott, who uh, started in the crime scene but is sort of like getting famous right now for doing these um, coming-of-age, young girl, young adult novels. She wrote this uh, brilliant, what's characterized as a cheerleader noir um, you actually mentioned this. Yeah, I don't yeah. know her. Yeah, that sounds I'm, crazy. I, for some reason, I'm blanking on the title at the moment. I'll think of it in a second. Uh, Patricia Highsmith. I think. Oh, never heard of that. Are you serious? I, yeah, I'm totally serious. Talented yeah. Mr. Ripley, Strangers on a Train. Um, oh, Jesus. You know, contemporary of Chandler. Um, Fucking hell. See, that's the danger. This thing just exposes enormous holes. <laughs> like, I, Yeah. Brilliant, I mean, obviously know those. Writer. I obviously yeah. know those books and movies and stories, but didn't know it was her. And Boom! It, We're all there. It sort of kills me. This was a soul searching when I left Chandler off this yeah, list because I think um, I don't know. I just I feel like sometimes he just falls down on the plot. Like brilliant scenes, brilliant characters, brilliant metaphors, but sometimes the plot just doesn't cohere in a way that makes me feel like, oh, I should recommend every single Chandler book that's out there. Well, I guess sticking to the topic, sure. Yeah. I mean, Hammett, on the other hand. Hammett, on the other hand. Continental Op, Red Harvest. For God's sake. Thin Man. The Thin Man. Across the You board. could just live in the Thin Man and be good. So, yeah. that's what I have for crime. Did you have... What about you? Anything that I missed in the crime category? No, I mean, you got Jim Thompson in there. Um, I think... Um, no, nothing that's coming to mind right now. I'm sure if I gave it some thought that there's other stuff I'd want in there for crime. But, um, well, I mean, Ed Bunker, you know, I mean, he's a he's a kind of an outlier. He's never, he's not a, he was, he's a, he's a, um, he's a criminal by trade. He's not a writer by trade, but um, I've never read a Bunker book that I was not devouring. Yeah. So for me, for in crime, Ed, Ed, Eddie Bunker is right there. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these people like um, Hammett and some other people came up through being a detective or being a cop or, you know, you have someone like a Michael Connolly who came to crime writing from being a crime reporter. It's very few people that come to crime writing from being a criminal. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yep. Like Eddie Bunker. I mean, yeah. then you have um, someone like, uh, what's... The Catch Me If You Can guy, what's his name? Yeah, 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 I forget. Um, anyways, in real real life, you know, he obviously wrote wrote about his own life and his own experience. Yeah. And uh, then became a, a consultant, a security and fraud consultant, and made way more money than he made when he was a criminal. Yep. So, um, moving on, this is a category I'm sure I'm going to get no love from anyone else in the room. But We're not, yeah, I'm, this is you, this is you. <laughs> um, Brandon Sanderson, uh, currently... Uh, very prolific. He comes out with about two books a year, which is insane because some of his books are like 1,700 pages. Um, he's doing kind of an, an epic fantasy series. He took over for um, the famous Robert Jordan who wrote the Wheel of Time series. When he died before finishing that series, Brandon Sanderson actually stepped in and took over 
tighten the books back up. They move much faster. Really, really great. All of Brandon's um, kind of his limited series, his standalones, and he's just doing young adult stuff now as well. It's all fantastic. Brent Weeks, um, his first uh, trilogy was called the Night Angel Trilogy. Now he's doing um, a really brilliant sort of follow-up series um, that has like an incredibly unique magic system, really cool. Robin Hobb, um, who is also a great female writer, has done some legendary series, um, has a really amazing character in this gesture, character who's an advisor to the king, really unique. Uh, wow. Joe Abercrombie, however, is probably my favorite, favorite fantasy writer. And if someone like you who likes dark, gritty shit, I would uh, recommend, he has in his first series this torturer character, Sandan Glaka, which is like one of the greatest characters in um, modern fantasy. And he also wrote this book called The Heroes, where the first... 15 pages of the books, he's introducing characters and these characters are immediately killed in this like massive battle. I actually it's bought like, that book on your recommendation. Yeah. It's in my pile. Oh my God, yeah. it's incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, re you recommended that one. So, and he, he does these things that are like, I love things that are mashups of genres and he does like, almost like a, a Sergio Leone Western meets fantasy book wow. and all sorts of great stuff like that. He's constantly mashing things up. Heading to nonfiction, which um, I don't read nearly as much of. I'm kind of a voracious fiction reader. Peter Goralnik, I think, is like one of the best people writing about music. Uh, yeah, who's he's ever written about music. Yeah. His um, two-volume uh, biography of Elvis that starts with Last Train to Memphis, which is about the first half of Elvis' career, and his, the second book, which I almost recommend more, and you could actually just start with the second book, is called Careless Love, The Unmaking of Elvis Presley, and it's all about his life just falling apart and becoming a total train wreck. <laughs> Who doesn't like to read that? Um, he wrote an amazing book about the blues and Delta blues feel like going home. He wrote this really great book, also uh, obviously themed on the Delta blues, called Searching for Robert Johnson. Yeah, that he, I've known about. He takes the whole myth of the crossroads and sort of um, investigates and dispels that whole myth and talks about how Robert Johnson went from showing up at this club where you had to kind of prove your worth and get up on stage when he was showed up and was like completely worthless and how he came back basically six months later playing in this style that just leapfrogged absolutely everyone. He kind of investigates how did that actually happen. Uh, brilliant book, Searching for Robert Johnson. And he wrote a book on soul music as well called Sweet Soul Music. That's really great. Um, to round it out real quick, Stephen E. Ambrose, this is like I'd love my, to see he's my, on there. my like greatest generation Republican pick yeah. <laughs> on yeah. the list. Um, Band of Brothers is amazing. All of his kind of historical books are amazing. Killer. It's like the um, you know the nonfiction equivalent of um, a Ken Burns. Yeah, exactly. You know, documentarian almost. And you know, when you watch The War uh, by Ken Burns, you couldn't help think of all the work that Ambrose had done. Yep. Um, and I believe his son is actually picked up where he left off and is taking out the network. And then um, one of the greatest uh, sort of documentary uh, books of all time, Friday Night Lights, is unbelievable. Whether you like football or not, it's just an amazing book. Yeah. Um, in the same way that if whether you like basketball or not, Hoop Dreams is, am is an course. amazing documentary. H.G. Bissinger, sometimes, I think at the time Friday Night Lights went out, he went by Buzz Bissinger. Yep. So um, really amazing, really great. So before I, I honestly want I want to hear a little bit. Um, so recently, you and I were talking about um, you have been on. Um, you're always a biography reader. H. I'm a biography reader. So the the, the narrative, you know, the, or the fiction and the the sci-fi are kind of out of my. And I never consistently read one reader. So, right. so I'm kind of book to book to book. I've never. Right. So you, you have no loyalty to author, you just no, go kind of where the wind so ever, It's all subject for me. I'm one subject, and then I get on one subject, and I go on another subject, and then I shoot off to another So what's the latest subject? The new subject is 20th century artists, biographies of 20th century artists, hmm. which has been really good. So currently it was, you know, it started with Francis Bacon, Lucian Freud, Otto Dix, and now I'm on the Alexander McQueen, because I'm trying to kind of break out of the painting mold. Okay. And what does modern fashion mean in context of somebody like Francis Bacon? 
And, and for me, it's like, how do you take like a subject range like 20th century art, and then how do I draw connections between these artists right. and how they work using the different biographies? But the thing that you, the thing that struck me, like about, because you and I had a few conversations about your reading. I don't remember which one it was. I think it was the Francis Bacon book, where it's like these things are gritty yeah. and not like. I mean, you're seeing like the dark side of this stuff, right? I mean, these are well, lives. These are extraordinary well, lives. I think what's really fascinating too, and it's kind of a new thing for me reading these kind of 20th century biographies, is it's now. So there's real documentation of people still alive where they're in the bars where people are getting picked up and fucked and drunk and robbed. Yes. And, and there's real stories and anecdotes of real people, which is really kind of, it's a different kind of history. It's almost, it's not history, it's a biography, historical biography in a way, which is, hmm. to me, really fascinating. Oh, for sure, yeah. yeah. And about, like, you know, amazing minds doing amazing. crazy, yeah. crazy shit. Any biography on Francis Bacon is one of the greatest things. Fucking hate. Yeah, I know. That's that's on the list. Um, along with 30 other fucking things, right? I mean, what are you going to do? That's my question listening to this list is, when are you guys reading this? Well, that's him. I, I, listen, I've had this... You get one book a month. Oh, for fuck's sake. And I ask him this all the time because we are busy. All three of us, we work a lot. And you, you know, I mean, you it's, read constantly. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's my content of choice. I think the Kindle has revolutionized my life. Actually. You've told me that. I and, know. And, I mean, on, frankly, online sites, you know, Amazon and all that stuff, you can just discover people so much faster. I mean, not to mention things like Goodreads and, you know, I'm part of like a fantasy group on there just to see they publish something every month that's like a hundred people talking about what they're reading. Are you reading a book a week? Uh, yeah. Two weeks? Usually at least. I, I average, I would say, three to four a month. I mean, depending on the length of what I read. Son of a bitch. Yeah. I know. <laughs> I'm jealous of that. Because I struggle with one. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, for God's sake. I'm lucky. I feel like it's such short, an idiot. I can get to it. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're, right. let's move on to Close something that I do yeah. to actually right. have time to do. All right. Let's move on to the watch category. And this week, we wanted to talk about there are... A lot of new sites out there emerging. Last week we talked a little bit about the Amazons and the Netflix, and then yeah. it's kind of like these emerging top-tier content creators. But this week we wanted to talk about more. There are a bunch of obscure sites that are coming out that are collecting things, sort of like almost a modern take on the Criterion Collection or a digital take on the Criterion Collection, yep. where they're um, aggregating independent and obscure either films or documentaries and um, I know that you guys are up on a lot of these sites and a lot of our listeners might not have heard of these but um, you can sometimes even for free access some of these services so yeah. why don't you talk about where you've been watching and what you've been watching so I've been um, for the last couple of years so there's a few um, and H you've turned me on to um, so Mark travels um, more than any of us um, at least long stretches and he hasn't had TV since Christ left yeah. Chicago, never. Yeah. So um, you have always been like online watching, and you have turned me onto it's like, like a hunter gatherer. Really, it, it forces it, you to find yeah. good things, so you're not just watching TV. It's yeah. Like, All right, you've got to figure out where to find stuff, which was a lot harder six years ago. Oh, for it's sure. Easy now. Yeah. yeah, it is getting easy now. So if you do, I mean, if you do just a search of watch documentaries online, you, your first. Four hits are going to be the big ones, which are like um, free documentary online or watch documentaries or documentary addict. And these are all good in varying levels. Um, I mean, I don't want to delve too deep. Yeah. On documentary addict, I mean, sometimes they're just. That's the best one. They're just aggregating things that are on YouTube. Well, it, all of these Some are. Of it. Oh, all really? of these are. Okay. Yeah. So I think one thing that I've found is like. And you may find, you know this better than I do, H. So you may have something better news than I do on this. But they, like, they have, they, they skew heavy in foreign. Um, they skew heavy in short form. They skew heavy in uh, low distribution documentaries, which is great. But what that means is you got to pick and choose because there's a lot of garbage in there. You know what I mean? But there are also a ton of great things, and it depends on why you're watching. If you're watching for great production value and incredible whatever, you may not find it, but you're also going to find some story 
um, lines that are not being discovered in other places or not being told, right? Yeah, I would say, you know, one of the ones, just kind of as, because I didn't really pre-think this out too much, because there's, like you're saying, there's the new common ones. I think there's always been one around for a long time, and it was journeyman.tv. And I don't know who it was, but I it was some kind of guy in England. And he would pull all the journalistic documentary TV shows from all over, like, Australia and England. So it's where we have Frontline here, and they have Storyville in Australia, I think it is, and all these other documentaries. He would pull all these and collate them. I think before YouTube, you no, could go. Shit. So now I think he's got a YouTube channel, so I think it is journeyman.tv. And the extensive library that this guy has kind of put together of amazing documentary stuff. Oh, it's, it's really good. Oh, good tip. That's a good one. Yeah. I don't. I don't remember that one. Yeah. That's killer because you're not going to go out and search like finding whatever's on Australian yeah. whatever. You know. Yeah. Well, that's a good one. I'll tell you the one. The thing that's made me most excited about this category this week is I've um, in the last two years my movie watching has been revolutionized by a service that has got ties to the Criterion Collection, which I'm a rabid fan of. Um, it's a... And I've, I've, I've turned you guys on this before. Um, I've talked about it to you anyway. Movie. Do you just assume what people know that it's Criterion? <laughs> it's Criterion Collection. <laughs> this kind of podcast? You oh, just for fuck's sake. All right, Todd. The, the Criterion Collection. <laughs> so it's, it, it's, a, um, it's a distribution company. pairs with Janus Films. They um, they collect important movies. They dive super deep into restorations, deep deep restorations that are saving film. Um, and they also they. I think that was their whole thing, right? Let's save film before it dies. It's a museum for film. It's a it, that absolutely is that it's was a museum. It's somebody let's let's save film and treat it like a museum, and then so, that's so exactly you can think right. It's like the Met or something for film. Yep, and they support it with unbelievable that you're not going to find anywhere else, like material, like yeah. behind the scenes documentaries, interviews, all kinds of stuff. So the Criterion Collection is, is a topic for another date because that I, I need right. we need to talk about that. But they have, um, they had a foray, and, and the relationship between them and MUBI, M-U-B as in boy, I, um, their relationship is fuzzy to me. I don't know exactly well, what Well, I it guess is. what it is, is what's the film museum in, in Queens? R21. Oh, yeah, right. It's something to do with the Metropolitan Museum. They have a film, a museum on modern film in Queens somewhere. Right. Through the New York Museum System. Movie is part of their thing with Criterion. That's so. I think they're the curators of this thing, and movies. Movies great because it's whatever the days of the month are. You get one film a day, exactly, and it lasts for the month, and then it goes away at the end of the month. So you have thirty mm-hmm. days to watch this thing. And it's twenty five bucks for the year. For the year, that's incredible. So it's really great. The collection is it's so curated and it's so timely because they you know the Berlin Ale um, Film Festival just ended. Yeah. So what they do is, like, as festivals are happening, they dig back into the archives and they're like, okay, here were the winners for the last five years from yeah. Berlin Ale. Yeah. Here's, like, Sundance is coming. Here's what we loved in Sundance in the last right. five years. And also, in the meantime, here's some crazy, like, you know, Jules Desan video that you've never was never released in America. And boom, here's a killer copy of it. Go ahead and watch it. You can right. download it and watch it offline. Hmm. It's and it also is paired with a social, um, a complete social community where you build a profile. And it was at first seemed a feeble attempt at like a, at socializing and Facebooking. Well, everybody's movies, yeah, of course they do. <laughs> exactly, but it was killer because it's like it, it's all people that are film nerds, right. and you're like in your place. It was like you know I don't know. It's like. It was, I loved it, and the social aspect of it, I gotta be honest, I, I'm not super um, active in social media, but... Um, well, you never be, you, the, the, I would never want to be social on something like Netflix, because when you go watch the Peter <laughs> chick so, so you'd be embarrassed, you never want to post it. Movie, it I would never actually be embarrassed if anything got They posted. used to actually <laughs> have that functionality on Netflix. Did they really? Where you could see everything. If you yeah, were friends everything. with someone, you could see everything that they were watching. And it used to like go into work and give people shit oh, about God. the stuff they were watching. It was hilarious. And they quickly realized that 
that's bad. the error of that. <laughs> yeah. And whatever. Now you need to opt in to see yeah. what people are watching and what you're watching. Oh. So. Well, I can't. Honestly, we'll move on here. But Mubi, you, I'm, as we go on, I'll be talking about this more. It's changed. Mubi's one of the best things I've ever... And I think it's the problem with the internet in general. It's great that we can have access to everything. But at a certain point, there's too much. And I want somebody who's smarter than me to curate something. And exactly. tell me what to watch. Yeah. And they do brilliant things where I think, like, just talking about the documentary angle, they did an amazing series last month, which was Metropolis. Oh, my God. And apparently Metropolis had failed horribly as a, yes. as a film. Yes. So they cut it down to 90 minutes. They lost all the film. That's right. So there's this whole documentary about it took 90 years to rebuild and find Metropolis. And they're finding pieces of it all over the world. So you watch this documentary for two hours about them rebuilding Metropolis. And then the next night, they put the full redone version of Metropolis. And you just don't find that. I'm I'm not going to go find that. I want somebody else can go find it. Oh, man. You you said it. It's the curated internet, which is great. So what about the new Sundance service? Sundance now yeah. has their own online documentary series. Have either of you? I haven't seen that one yet. I've seen it. I haven't gotten super involved. Um, I don't know why. I think it's equally inexpensive. Um, I think it's like five bucks a month or something. Um, yeah, no, no I, I, I'm, I can't talk to it. I don't know. What about you? I haven't tried it yet either. I mean, they've been, they've been doing some referrals through podcasts and stuff. Um, okay. You know, to get like, and I think they do first month free. Sure. So really, there's no reason not to try. Same with movie, yeah. yeah. Um, well, that's a good call. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll check that out. Well, um, last, before we move on, I just wanted to... This is sort of in a slightly different version, but a place where you can go to watch a lot of really interesting content. And this is a thing I got kind of turned onto from our discussions in the car on trips, which was Vice. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah oh, yeah. yeah. Vice is... Yeah. It's great. Yeah. It's really good. I mean, it's a very different sort of content to what we're talking about. It, it's like it, yeah. a blend of journalism and entertainment, but... Um, it, it is for sure, but it's gotten super deep, and I think we all have, like, kind of working and, like, I don't know, I think we all have our sort of um, opinions about them as, a, as, a, as an organization, but you can't tell me that you're not shocked when you see that... 12-year-old in Liberia holding up the heart of a human, and he's about, like, you can't tell me that that's, you've ever seen that before. No, or but the, I think the beauty of it is, and I think what it appealed to a lot of people of our generation was, we know the kids, we know there's a kid in, in Liberia somewhere holding a heart, but it's some guy like you and me going to do it, and we kind of wish we could. Oh. It's almost, to me, when I watch it, I'm like, God, that could have been me. Whereas when I see a professional journalist from the New York Times with a team of That's fixers. a good like, call. I never really associate with those people. I think Vice is the first time where you're like, dude, that's me. That guy just go and play my thing. No shit. It's <laughs> totally that, true. And they do really amazing stories, but there is kind of an association for you me. You know what? I'm kind of like, fuck, I could have done that. You're absolutely right. And you know what? It's the perfect it's example the of that. Guy, right? Is it's is when like, they do the um they do the death metal in Sweden when they go and there's like those kids that are like putting fucking like shopping bags in their feet and they're like fuck this, this is stupid why am I here and you're like right this is just a bunch of idiots with a camera that went right. somewhere for better or for worse but <laughs> yeah I I think the thing that's different about Vice once again for better or worse is they make capturing the story a critical part of the story and the right. misery yes. of, and all that is completely it's like. It's the Probably story. one of the tenets of journalism that you don't you make the story do. about yourself yeah. and yeah, you yeah, capture yeah. the story. Yeah. When you hear behind the things, behind yeah. the scenes, like Kelly McEvers from NPR just did this brilliant thing on what it, what, what it means and what it's like to be a war correspondent. When you do hear that stuff, you're like, oh my God, these people are doing more, if not you know, crazier things. I mean, journalists are losing their lives in the Middle right. East like on a monthly, yeah. if not daily basis oh. <laughs> at this point. So yeah. obviously there's a ton of risk involved, yeah. but they never make the story about that. Right. Whereas in Vice, they're making that transparent. For better or worse, you could argue. Yeah. It's way. entertainment. It's not journalism. It's kind of. It's a little self-aggrandizing, but that's where I think it's kind of appealing. Because you're kind of like, that could be me. I could have done that. I like that. I like <laughs> I that. North Korea, or I wish I had. Or I wish I, wish I had. <laughs> yeah, I wish I had done For that. sure, yeah. I, I, and I do feel, once again, maybe it's the, the 24-hour news cycle, and these stories are out there, but I'm missing them. But I do feel like 
and we talk about this a lot, like they are covering things that I'm not seeing from anyone else. No question. Like, like for the first time ever, I'm seeing massive amounts of ice shear off every 30 seconds from uh, Greenland, you know, and I'm not seeing that for, and it could be someone else that's being covered all the time and I'm just not seeing it, but. You're you're totally right. No one's covering the crazy, like, blackout zombie drug in South America. Yeah, which is one of the things. Yeah, I mean, I'm fascinated by the drug stuff because... The drug stuff's good. The drug stuff's great. And I think there's that thing, as as somebody who might have partaken at some point in my life, (laughs) that the the, the stories come about with, oh, you know, if you go to South America and you lick a frog, blah, blah, blah. And and so these stories get blown out of proportion and you never know what's true or not. And it's absolutely wonderful to watch some guy go down and lick a frog. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's like Mythbusters, but really cool. <laughs> it totally is. It's Mythbusters. <laughs> All right. I, I hate to cut this short. No, we got to move. Right. I think we move. Let's move on to the next category, which is now we've moved on to, to here, which is where we talk about music or anything else, podcasts, whatever we're listening to this week. Uh, we're going to the classic, the classic well of the four desert island discs. And if you were stranded on a desert island, what are the four records that you would take? The brutal, brutal, like, this is the question. If somebody asks you at a party, you're like, it go. Is, it is brutal. Yourself. It's really tough, I have to say. Um, and and I, I'll be honest with you. I mean, we've, I've known that we've been going to talk about this for a number of days now. And I purposely didn't make a list. Because I want to just say I'm gonna just I'm gonna make it up here. Um, wow. be, yeah, I'm gonna make it up here because I didn't want to. I'm gonna start then because I have a list. So I'll move through mine quickly. I'm gonna move. I'm gonna give can, you mine quickly too. We can hear. You know we can hear the sausage being made. <laughs> I'm not gonna drag you through it. But All you right. go first. Uh, so I'm gonna just rattle them off and then I'll go through and talk through each one. So Portishead, Dummy, Beatles, Revolver. Beck, Mutations, and Out to Lunch by Eric Dolby. And so what I wanted to do here was I covered a lot of genres. I wanted to get a, a good variety. I mean, you could argue Revolver and Mutations are very close together. So uh, Portishead is, and Dummy by Portishead, I feel like that album is still relevant, you know, decades later after it came out. There's not that much that sounds like it. It kind of like defined a, the sort of trip-hop genre. It was like the definitive album that came out. By far their best, most solid record. I think they struggled to kind of do something after that. Um, Revolver Amazing. was, I mean, I, you could put any Beatles record on here, really. And, you yeah. know, but Revolver, for me, is just this sort of seminal period where it, like, it just resonates with me in a way that, I mean, you could put Let It Be on here, you could put any of them, really. Sure. Um, but Revolver is my personal favorite. Beck and Mutations... So I know that I can listen to this one over and over again because I was working this shitty office job in San Francisco and I had a disc man and I got sent in, I was like a wage slave and I got sent into this office in um, this temp agency and I had to file, just like there were stacks of files as far as you can see and I just had to file for like a week and they told me I could bring in a disc man to listen to and the only CD I had Seriously? was Mutations. And I just listened to it on repeat over and over <laughs> and over again. And I never got sick of it. Yeah. So it's just a brilliant record. Like the incidental instrumentation and the percussion and the whole way it's recorded is fucking brilliant record. It is a brilliant um, record, yeah. And Out to Lunch by Eric Dolphy, once again, one of the pioneering records of jazz, one of the pioneering musicians, of, you know. I, I, I like a lot of jazz, but I wanted to really throw... I was torn between, like, do I throw a jazz or a blues record in here? And I landed on jazz because I just felt like every time I listened to Out to Lunch, like, every moment of that record is just surprising and brilliant, and that's why I put it on here. Yeah. That's... Sure. Eric Dolphy, I mean, personally... Uh, whatever, we're not going to get in, I'm not going to poke holes in your shit. But Eric Dolphy, I, would, I mean, I'm a big jazz fan. Um... um Eric Dolphy, I, I mean, that, that record in particular is the one for me for Eric Dolphy. That's killer. So, all right, here, I'm going to go just off the cuff, like I said. I, because here's, all right, here's my issue with the, the Desert Island stuff. Desert Island, it, it's either what are your fa- – it's not what are your favorite records. Desert Island means 
if it has to hold up to listening to for the rest of my godforsaken <laughs> life, right? So it's like I love this it's just, record. It's impossible. It's it's, it's an, an impossible, impossible it's an impossible task, which is why because you would hate anything. Yeah. After your whole life, but there can't be four. But here here we go. So and um, if I was on a desert island, it would have to be um, it would be Neil Finn one nil. Which you don't even fucking know that. I've never even heard that record. Of course you haven't. <laughs> no. no, and and no one no one else is going to either. It's like Neil Finn, as, as I you know admitted to last week. Crowded House has always is this been like your homie huge. from Boston. Or <laughs> 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 from Southie. He had the fucking killer Casio in his basement. No, but Neil Finn, um, one nil is a perfect pop record for me, and it's. I can't I can't live without that record. Um Peter Gabriel up, I can't live without that record. Um I think again, being kind of put on the spot here, I guess I would have to go with like it's either gonna be um like it's either gonna be a miles or a cold train record and, and I guess I guess I'd fall two miles um which one? Kind of blue. Um, I think, or or it's it's hard. It's hard. Like I said, I haven't given this thought. I haven't picked records. Um, I mean, Miles Davis has a hundred and thirty thousand records, yeah. right? Um, so it's almost like picking a period, you know. So I'm like, I, for me, Miles like Bop. It's pre. Yeah. It's pre I mean, kinda, like kind of blue is right in the sweet spot. Kind of blue, I think, is where I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll land for here. Pre Miami Vice, Miles Davis, yeah, you know, post like super tight suit, you know, much more yeah traditional bop. He changed every five yeah. years, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, just remarkable, right? So, and then last, um, Jesus, um, I guess it would have to be like. You know, it's going to be a super chunk record. Um, it, it's going to be, I think, like... You know what? It's a single. I'm going with a single. I'm going with 100,000 Fireflies. 12-inch. Wow, that's super bold. Chunk. It you're, is bold. You're squandering your resources here. <laughs> one song. I know, but it's, it's seminal. And, like, I feel like it has been the thing throughout my life that has been like it resets I reset with it and this is this is an impossible task it's a super fun it's more fun I have this discussion <laughs> among good friends and intolerant listeners intolerant people I'll have this discussion for yeah. weeks I love yeah. it yeah, yeah. you know what I mean so I'm, that's what I'm saying for today H what do you got this is a tough one because I'm not I'm not a total music nerd, but I would say any Western album that they sent to Europe and put a disco beat on, <laughs> that would be one of them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see. I'm going to define my island. I'm going to go dark, cold Norwegian island, Jesus. not some tropical warm oh, wow. thing. Because yeah. I need to kind of the music will define. Holy shit! I never island. even entered the picture. You always think of a. <laughs> You always think of like the. Well, you gotta know where you are, right? I mean, yeah. if you're on a tropical island, it's much different yeah. than if you're on Holy shit, some yeah. weird iceberg floating around in Iceland. So I'm going cold because it's cold out. Interesting choice. I'm gonna go Nick Cave, No More Shall We Part. Oof. This is Oh, good. Um, the best of Leonard Cohen. All right, to do a best of album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, of course, and nothing better for that for that island. No, I'm, I'm not coming to visit you. Up. We're just crying. It's cold. I will not come visit you. I'll come for like a couple hours. Um, Bauhaus, press the eject, give me the tape. Oh, Jesus, good one. My fourth one. I'm struggling with the fourth one. Bauhaus is nice. Bauhaus is good. The it's more I listen to it now, I've been listening to it a lot. You realize how good it is. Upstage Santa's and just pick like a ringtone. <laughs> <laughs> just, just for when the call comes in, I get one ringtone. It's gonna be marumba. What a bitch! <laughs> <laughs> what a son of a bitch! 
fuck, that's uh, funny. I'm, no, on the spot, I can't pick a fourth one. It's not, it's, it's escaping. Well, listen, here's the deal. You're on some, you're not even going to make it to four records no. on that fucking no. We'll let you off with three. <laughs> but we're on Dark Norwegian Island, so we're good. Yeah, you're, you're good. You're an ice block after the third record. Holy so, shit, that's fun. Now, if we do a tropical island, it'll change. Fair enough. So as a, um, I have to ask before we move on to our final category here. As a Nick Cave fan, have you seen Peaky Blinders? Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. my god, yeah, I yeah, love that amazing. show. Amazing. I've been yeah. recommending that to <laughs> anyone who will who will listen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What does he have to do with that? Uh, he did. He's the, 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 the red right hand is a lot of the kind of. Music. The oh, show, yeah. But then they make use of a lot of his songs throughout yeah. the show. Yeah. Yeah. Do they really? The second season, a lot of other people do his songs. Yeah, this is really which good. is brilliant. Have you seen the 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 pseudo documentary, the Nick Cave um, twenty thousand? No. Oh no, I haven't seen that. Oh yeah, so I haven't seen it either. But there's Nick Cave plays himself in kind oh, of I've the. Heard about this, but yeah, no, I haven't seen it. yeah, no, me neither. God, we sound like a bunch of fucking assholes on this thing. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. Hey, you, got, t- you haven't seen about it. a bunch of stuff we haven't seen. Yeah, you <laughs> haven't seen it either. So. Let's move on. All right. Final category this week was the first category last week. Last category this week, we're here to talk about food. And the food we're here to talk about is ramen. Yes, sir. Yes, it and is. In full transparency, I gotta say, the whole reason I wanted to talk about this was so we could point people towards the ramen that you and I had in LA at Daiko Kuya. Oh, fuck. It is. So I wanna start. Let's talk about that. Let me back up just for one second. Just. A relevant thing that came up this past week in my reading. Um, so David Chang, who a lot of people will um, credit with bringing or popularizing ramen in America, he last week um, announced the death of ramen in America, saying that you know the um, sort of the lineage of learning the craft and then innovating on it was very low in the learning <laughs> department and very high in the innovating department. And he's like, what's happened is this, as many things do in America, they get popularized, i.e. the ramen burger, and then kind of, you know, spread out into whatever. Right. Fine, whatever. He's David Chang. You do whatever the fuck you want. But, but doesn't it also elevate things as well? I don't know. If It, do, it depends on who's doing it's it. It's really interesting because in Mind of a Chef, which if people haven't seen the first season of Mind of a Chef, chef it's... It's killer. It's amazing viewing, but it's a lot of David Chang in Tokyo, in Japan, in Japan yeah. talking about the different styles of ramen and the tradition of ramen and pointing you towards a lot of amazing, probably the best ramen you're ever going to have in your life. But one of his complaints there seems to be the rigid adherence to tradition. He, he's and, right. Yeah. And he focuses on some people over there who have innovated it and are kind of seen as like cowboys and outsiders in that culture because they're breaking from tradition. So it's interesting to hear that he's decrying, um, and once again, I give him a lot of credit for he's he's you know tried to do traditional with the spin or traditional with the as traditional or as close to traditional as possible with the means that he has available to him in the states. I mean, we're talking about a man who went to the lengths of working with MIT scientists to try to reproduce ingredients that you can't get over here because the That's FDA right. doesn't allow them. That's exactly right. So. You know, certainly if if you're going to attach a name to ramen in the U.S., his his name is one of the ones you're going to attach. Yeah, and, and, and I don't. Went through in LA? No, this is Momofuku. Okay. Um, and and by no means did I want to derail it. It was just right. something I've been thinking about as we've right. been gearing up to talk about ramen. But let's get back to Daikokuya. So, um, Japantown, L.A. Yes. So we for, for the layman. For the layman. Define why it is so much better than say Momofuku. Well, a lot of people, a lot really of people good, argue that it's not. It's not. Um, I, I, I wouldn't argue that it's better, but... Daiko Kuya's tra- uh, traditional, very traditional take on ramen. Yeah. It's got a... What I loved about it and what blew my mind was it had a kind of broth that I'd never had before, which was this sort of... I don't know, is it like a fermented soy? It's a miso, yeah. yeah it's like, a miso broth. Like a more miso-style broth. And, Where he's like a pork broth. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure he does. Of course he does all of them. But Momofuku, I think, specializes in their pork bone broth. Yep. This was a miso broth that they yeah. that they specialize in. It unreal. For, oh, for fuck's sake. So, you know, again, another full disclosure. Like, we had come... 
like we had come into Pat's at Gino's, hungry, coming from the road, same thing kind of yeah. here. We'd been on a video shoot, documentary shoot, all day long. Rolled to Japantown, starving. Yep, and got there on time because yeah, this place there. lines up. Perfect, perfect time because we only had to wait like 20 minutes and we were warned, like, you, there's a line out the door, you're going to wait an hour and, a, hour and a half. Yeah. One of the great things about it, too, you walk in and, it, and mostly Asians... You know, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mostly Japanese people sitting down yep. eating. Very traditional setup. Uh, we got no mus, no fuss. Yeah. Totally straightforward. Sat at a bench facing a wall, pretty much. We got um, eighteen inches at most between your gut <laughs> and yeah. the Which, wall. And by the time you're done eating, it's more like fourteen inches. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah. And um, yeah, it was. Um, in there, and ramen is, it's business. Like, you're there, you're not going there for a client dinner. Like, it was just Eric and I, and we talk all day, every day. So, not, we don't need to talk. It was ramen, hot, up in your face, sweating, eating. I'll talk to you in 22 and one half minutes when I'm done slurping out of this bowl. Yeah. And noodles, perfect. I've never. Noodles. Oh, Never had a noodle as perfectly executed as this place. Me neither. And Did so people know. Street food in Japan? Um, I, I don't. I thought it was just coin operated street food. In Japan. Well, everything's coin operated. Trying to say it's the cheesesteaks of Japan. Yes. It's the cheesesteaks of Japan. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> and you can't really say that ramen is good. Oh, for fuck's sake! <laughs> Jesus, here he goes. You're taking the piss. But um. And to to give a little bit, we're not neophytes here. Like, I mean, Eric and I have eaten ramen across the country, and we have a couple of good spots here in Minneapolis. They're, I'm not going to put them, I'm not going to take the Pepsi challenge with big cities, but um, but we've eaten ramen across the country, and Daikakuya, for me, was, that was the money. Seriously legit. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I would, I, I, I've been to a couple, couple places in Manhattan that are... Extremely, extremely good, and it's always hard in these situations. You're talking eating something months apart, so how do you a b something For when sure. it, you're six months different circumstances, different city across the United States? But you know, I, I think you know putting deco with you put deco kuya and momofuku up for me, and you said which one of these would you absolutely kill to eat at again? Deco kuya wins. Yep, and like, I've been to momofuku half a dozen times. I've been to Uputo. A dozen times. Um, I've been to Daikakuya once. And it was... It was better. And not nearly as fancy. Apudo, like, for as slammed, packed, and busy it is, it's it's kind of fussy. They got the fancy bowl, fancy thing, fancy whatever. You know what I mean? It's They, they, they fluff it up a little bit. Daikakuya is no frills. It's the bowl, slam, here you go. And not to say that it's not presented well. Like, the egg is cooked perfectly. The, yeah. you know, everything is... It's all about the execution. It's all about execution, yeah. It's, in the noodle, it's hard to, I mean, you know, not, I don't have the words to explain about noodles because, I mean, there's a whole, like, chemical process that goes into the noodle. I don't know enough about it, but I'll tell you, that noodle is just the right springiness, it's the right color, it's the right, soaks up enough of the flavor, it's in the, let me get the fuck out of here and go get ramen right now. Yeah. <laughs> So what do you, what's your hometown fave? What Minneapolis? You're going out for ramen. Where are you going? Zenbox. Zenbox. It's yeah. um, you know there's and this is out of I think probably four spots. You will ch- and people will you know there's not a lot of people that are listening to this that are gonna have an opinion on uptown Minneapolis ramen, but um, people will will um, not agree that uh, Moto E. Is a good spot. I disagree. It's really good. What about so I would I, my Zenbox versus uh, for me it'd be between Zenbox and the pork belly ramen at Masu. Oh, well, yeah, I'm Zenbox. The pork belly ramen at Masu is killer. But the thing that sucks, and not that I need the big fucking bowl, but why is it so small? It's, ramen never. I've never seen a smaller bowl of ramen in my life. It's enough. It's. I mean, of course, the fat kid's gonna fucking complain about the small bowl. But, but honestly, 
But the, but why is it so small? Like you know, these people have eaten ramen. Why? There's a standard size for a bowl of ramen. What you decided you'd oh we're gonna have a smaller bowl here because that's our thing. It's delicious. It's great. But that kind of baby yeah. ramen. You need a big bowl. <laughs> Fuck off. I don't so need. So speaking of which, at Daikokuya in LA when we went in, we both got the same combo. And talk about the combo for a second, because the, the, the side dish ridiculous. of the barbecued pork was unreal. Were we well. stupid enough to start with a starter? I don't think... No. no okay, no. we, we weren't, got but combo. we got the combo. still way too much food. It's ridiculous. So the combo is your bowl of ramen, which is, like, you know, they say the size of your stomach is your two palms put together, which you can take that rule and, like, forget you ever even fucking heard it. Well, you've got room above and below your stomach. <laughs> good point, good point. I didn't think of that. See? Yeah, there you go. So it comes with this enormous bowl of ramen. It's a gallon, the whole thing. And then, um, but it also comes with this incredibly dense, like, pint-about-sized bowl of rice packed with, like, braised chicken crammed in the middle of it. Like with like us, fried chicken, basically. fried chicken, crammed in the middle, unbelievably delicious. But the rice, it's not just a bowl of rice. Like it's like there's a, a there's like pan drippings and this unbelievable fucking shit happening in there. That's so the rice is unbelievable. So you hit that rice and you're like, holy shit! And you're eating that and you're like, fuck! I, I gotta hit the ramen. But then they also have that delicious, unbelievable Japanese salads. I love. Because they, it's that paper oh, yeah, yeah. thin yeah, yeah. on the, the mandolin salad. That's cabbage. Right. It comes with a salad too. Oh man! Oh, yeah, and it's and ice cold. It's almost and that a ice perfect dressing. sesame dressing. Yeah. The dressing and it's ice cold and it's super crisp and it's just unbelievable. All right, Jesus, <laughs> we're out here. Yeah. I'm, do- I'm gonna go eat. Yeah, you're, you're twenty minutes over your half an hour. All right, well. All right. <laughs> well, Mark, thanks so much for joining hey, us. Yes. At least I can pipe in after the fiction. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, thanks for listening to Good Looking Out. You can email us at goodlookingoutpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at GLO Podcast. And remember, life is too short to waste time and money on bad shit. See you next time.